Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post brand studio. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Tracy Jan calling from The Post. Am I President Trump, how are you? Hi, it's Robin Gibbon at The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, January 29th. Today, winter is coming. Former spies get acquainted with the halls of Congress, and a rapper riffs on the experience of motherhood. This week, in much of the country, a record-breaking cold snap is coming. In the upper Midwest, wind chill temperatures could be as low as minus 65. People are being ordered to stay indoors. A dangerous and deadly polar vortex is sweeping the coldest air in a generation into the country's midsection. Chicago will be colder today than parts of the Arctic Circle. At one Chicago zoo, the only animals allowed to remain outside are the polar bears. On Monday night, environmental reporter Brady Dennis was working on a story about this super cold weather. And up pops the tweet from the president that says, what's going on with global warming? Please come back fast. We need you. But extreme weather, even winter storms and Arctic cold outbreaks like this one, could actually be exacerbated by climate change. You know, there is some evidence that the warming of the Arctic, the Arctic has warmed basically twice as fast as the rest of the globe in in recent decades, and that that warming can cause disruptions that send polar weather, Arctic weather, farther south. So what we're seeing now. And climate change can mean that there are very cold stretches that are fueled by things like that. I think one important way to think about that is that while we may have record lows this week in certain parts of the country, we've seen many, many more record highs. You know, I would just note that this week, while we're we're having minus 50 degrees in Chicago, they have recorded temperatures of 120 degrees in Australia. When you look at record lows versus record highs, the trend is to getting warmer and warmer. It's not to say that there won't be cold days. Can you explain more what you mean when you say that disruptions in the atmosphere can help spur cold weather? Yeah. So the idea of what's happening this week, as I best understand it, is that if you think of the Arctic on the top of the Earth, the polar vortex sort of is this wide expanse of swirling cold air that generally stays up there, right? And is sort of blocked in by the jet stream. The jet stream circles the Earth and sort of keeps the cold air on top and the more temperate air to the south. But warming ocean water and the melting of of sea ice in the north can disrupt the jet stream. And as one scientist was explaining it, make that wave wavier, you know, bigger waves. And that pushes cold air farther to the south and warm air farther to the north in certain places. And that's why you get this really kind of screwy weather, way warmer than normal in, in the Arctic and way colder than normal in, for instance, the Midwest this week. So it's hard to say how much of that is attributable to climate change. I think scientists are still studying that. But it certainly can fuel sort of these really bizarre weather patterns that we see now sometimes, and maybe with more regularity. I was talking to Angela Fritz, the reporter and meteorologist that we have here at The Post. And what she said was that when she was in meteorology school, they sort of explained the weather as a bell curve. 
99.9% of the time, things are going to be sort of in the middle and that instances of extreme weather are really rare on either side of the, the edge of the bell. But that what climate change does is that it just like smushes the bell so those edges get fatter and you see a lot more of those instances of extreme weather, you know, whether it's a polar vortex or hurricanes or wildfires or hot temperatures. Yeah. As you mentioned, this week we're talking about really frigid life-threatening cold weather. Last summer, we were looking at the hurricanes that blew in. And, and the both interesting but difficult thing about figuring out what role climate change plays in that is like, it's not like hurricanes wouldn't happen otherwise. Often another argument that's used to, to question climate change. But, you know, w- with increasing certainty, scientists are saying, yes, hurricanes would come along every year as, as they always have, but they're more frequent, they're more intense. Same with wildfires and floods and droughts. And so I think what we're trying to figure out is what role climate change plays in that. But I think there's less and less of a question of whether it plays a role. It feels like one of the challenges of explaining that to regular people is the fact that we still sometimes use this term global warming to describe the earth getting hotter. But it feels like global warming is supposed to mean everywhere on earth gets hotter or that that any type of weather that isn't just feeling warmer doesn't really count as part of global warming. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's a really difficult dilemma, I would just say, as someone who writes about this, because especially in our country and in our society, all these terms have come to have a political meaning. They seem to be loaded terms, right? So that's one issue you have to get over is that if you say global warming or climate change, suddenly people take sides on what they believe or think or what their politics say. So that's one Obstacle, And then another issue is, yes, it's kind of counterintuitive. Sometimes global warming or climate change, whatever you want to call it, does mean that overall the, the Earth's atmosphere is heating up. But on weeks like this week, it can have some effects that are like, you know, you'd think, well, why does that mean it's like really super cold in Chicago? It makes no sense. So it just shows what a dynamic and kind of diverse place the Earth is and how it's not just black and white. Brady Dennis covers environmental policy for The Post. January 2017. President Trump has just taken office. And in one of his first public appearances, he heads to Langley, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C., home to the headquarters of the Central Intelligence Agency. There is nobody that feels stronger about the intelligence community and the CIA than Donald Trump. Maybe sometimes you haven't gotten the backing that you've wanted, and you're going to get so much backing. Maybe you're going to say, please don't give us so much backing. At the time... The tone and message of this speech got a lot of attention. Because it was his first time to the agency. He had already attacked the agency in the run-up to his visit. And here he was standing in its famed lobby with this the marble memorial wall honoring slain operatives, people who have died in the line of duty. That's Ian Shapira. He's a post-Enterprise reporter who has written about the intelligence community. So here he is giving a speech at a very sacred place. The president talked a lot about himself, how popular he was, how he had been on Time magazine, allegedly more than anybody else. So a reporter for Time magazine, and I had been on their cover like 
14 or 15 times. I think we have the all-time record in the history of Time magazine. That's not true, actually. Uh, he denounced members of the press as some of the most dishonest people. Is that, as you know, I have a running war with the media. They are among the most dishonest human beings on earth. Aina is talking about this moment of Trump at Langley because of how it specifically impacted one former spy at the CIA, Abigail Spanberger. She was a case officer, and she worked in Western Europe. She can't say where exactly. I was working out of European Division. I was doing counterterrorism cases and managing a counterterrorism program and another program focused on a transnational threat. She was principally handling assets and recruiting assets. And for this former spy, the Trump visit to the CIA set off a really surprising chain of events. For Abigail, it was a major moment because here she was in Washington, actually. It just turned out at the Women's March with her family, and she's watching this on TV, and she was upset by it. I mean, this is a, a wall that she passed by many times in her career. It's what I always wanted to do. It was my whole identity. Every aspect of who you are is defined by the fact that you're an intelligence officer. The way you look at the world, the way you interact with the world, the way you interact with your kids, with your spouse, with your parents. So it just felt, in a way, sacrilegious to her, and something, something was off. It was the accumulation of so many of these moments that led her down her path. And it's why I joined the CIA, to serve my country and protect American lives. Too many Washington politicians serve special interests or themselves. In Congress, I'll bridge divides, find solutions, and put people first. In the 2018 midterms, Spanberger ran as a Democrat in Virginia's 7th District against Republican Dave Bratt. And she won. Now, in this 116th Congress, Spanberger is one of three former spies in the House. And then we also have another woman named Alyssa Slotkin. They join an existing third Congress member named Will Hurd. There were other women from the CIA who actually tried and uh, but lost or withdrew this time around uh, from the agency. So we saw, we, we're seeing more of this happen now. And as Ian explains, that's highly unusual. You know, typically, spies have not gone down this route. I interviewed Leon Panetta, for instance, the former director, and he told me that this was, you know, a generation of spies from long ago would have looked down on this, basically. This is not something that was done. Folks at the agency have been proudly uh, apolitical, and they, in a way, many of them still do, look down on partisanship. Also, Congress has been a place that has been kind of like a nemesis to the CIA, They've got oversight of the agency, and for decades, going back to the 1970s, they've just been a thorn in their side. And for these two new members who come from the intelligence community, why did they decide that they were going to break with tradition and become political? I think they had had it with the lack of facts that have been pervasive on the Hill and in the administration. What Panetta told me was that the attack on facts has riled them up so much because facts are so valued at the agency. Now, granted, the CIA has not been perfect when it comes to facts over the years, most famously for the weapons of mass destruction. Some of it had to do with not only just Trump, but his stance against the intelligence agencies. He's taken conflicting stances 
with the agency on a, new, a number of issues, from North Korea to Iran. You know, the agencies come up with one kind of finding, and he either doesn't believe it or has another conclusion he's come to himself. So that's one reason. And I think another reason is just they've reached a point where the CIA does not make sense for them anymore and that they're much more passionate about other subjects. And in the case of Alyssa Slavkin, she told me that she saw Republicans celebrating a bill repealing Obamacare. Her mother was quite ill and she was really upset by it. And so she decided to announce on Facebook one day, I'm thinking about running for Congress. And people thought, she had been hacked. Like they were <laughs> because so, it was so shocking that someone in the CIA would, would want to run for Congress. Exactly. So now that we have a little bit more of this kind of CIA representation in Congress, what are their priorities or how will that change what Congress pursues? Well, I think in the case of Slotkin and Spamberger, they've been pretty coy about what they want to do and what they will do. They hope to play roles in issues like cybersecurity, preventing any more election interference by the Russians. I mean, these are folks who had classified level of intelligence on Russian operations, Russian atrocities. So I suspect you will see them try to play a larger role. They are freshmen, so they can get limited because of their their rookies. There have been several instances over the last couple of years where the CIA has come up with conclusions that President Trump has pretty much denied, you know, whether it's about Russian involvement in the election or about involvement of the Saudi royal family in the death of Jamal Khashoggi. The fact that Abigail Spanberger and Slotkin are going to be in Congress, will they be able to do anything to push President Trump to kind of reckon more honestly with conclusions that come out of the CIA? I think people have tried (laughs) doing that. What might be able to happen is if you have more people like Spanberger and Slotkin, who have this authority, who come from it, from this apolitical background, maybe they might be able to convince their counterparts on the other side that we're not partisan hacks. We've been in the military, the CIA, for a long time. Our views are not born from some ulterior motive. They are born from a tradition that is based on evidence and intelligence. So they might bring more credibility and authority to the Democrats, and that might sway some people in the Republicans. Given that Abigail Spanberger was prompted to go into politics to try to get into Congress, at least because in part of what she'd seen from President Trump, has she talked about, like, how she intends to deal with Trump, to interact with him or oppose him? What she told me about interacting with the other side was that she will treat this situation like she did with foreign assets of the agency. What I mean by that is... Abigail said to me that she believes she has an ability to work with people who have opposing views, that when you are an officer at the agency and you have to recruit or handle an asset, you have to find some commonality with this person to get them to play on your side. And I think what she told me was that she can use that same logic, that same strategy when it comes to working with Republicans. She's really good at finding out what motivates people. Where can we find common ground on one issue? We don't have to agree on everything, but what is the one thing we can and can we work together on it? It sounds simple in many ways, but if you're coming at it from a point of view of a CIF, sir, then it makes a lot more sense. And it feels a lot more deliberate and tactical than it otherwise would. Ian Shapira is a reporter at The Post. 
Today, the heads of the CIA and the FBI went to Capitol Hill, testifying before the Senate Intelligence Committee on major threats to the U.S. We expect Russia will continue to wage its information war against democracies and to use social media to attempt to divide our societies. The director of national intelligence told Congress that Russia, China, and Iran are probably already looking to interfere with the 2020 presidential elections. All four of these states that I have just mentioned are advancing their cyber capabilities, which are relatively low cost and growing in potency and severity. And now, one more thing. A dispatch from the Post's Nia Dakai on rap and motherhood. I guess I would have to say I'm a very rebellious person. So that's Brittany Moore, 28-year-old artist from Chattanooga. But on stage, she's known as Baby Mother. She's been making music for about five years now. And the one song that really made a lot of people look in her direction was this song called Rules. People started, you know, asking, who is this baby mother? Well, she's a mother of four. She has two sets of twins. Along with being this up-and-coming rap artist, she's also someone who has embraced motherhood in the digital age. She'll live post and have her kids in the background while she's talking with her fans. What do gangsters do? Cheat. (laughs) They cheat. Mm -hmm. What else do gangsters do? They eat you. They eat you. They throw things on the floor. Yeah. Okay, so then motherhood is deeply integrated into her image. And I thought it's bold because the term baby mother has such a negative connotation that black women are still that they still come up against often. Baby mother, you know, that doesn't have such a positive, you know, connotation to it, either baby mom or you a wife. And so baby mother reclaiming the name baby mother says a lot about where we are in society as well as like where we are or could be in hip-hop i would rather be a baby mama you know what i'm saying i just want to like flip everything that's ever been like negatively said about me and turn it into a positive and make money off of it So for someone like Cardi B, who had a range of success last year, for her to be pregnant and to get such a negative response from people just about her career and that it was over, that's what people were saying. Cardi B, your career will be over if you have this kid. For someone at her level to get that kind of pushback, imagine what it's like for a woman like Baby Mother who is an up-and-coming artist and building their career. Oftentimes, when we talk about women in the workplace, we refer to middle-class white women. And what Baby Mother represents is another kind of woman. A single mom, a woman who is Black, a woman who is brown. 
a woman who comes from a community or has an upbringing that isn't middle class. She is showing us that those women deserve to be part of the conversation about working mothers. Yeah, I wanna change, ain't wanna change. I wanna party with Madonna, but that's probably where the lane's be. I wanna extra and roll up in my backseat. I got the devil on my shoulder. That's it for today's episode. Check out WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports to find other recent episodes of the podcast that you may have missed and to learn more about the stories featured today. And as always, share thoughts with us by tweeting with the hashtag Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Post Reports is sponsored by T. Rowe Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T. Rowe Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.